What is up, everyone? I hope you're doing fantastically well today. This is Raphael Garcia here with Schwan Humes for episode number 189 of the Let's Talk Wrestling, or excuse me, MMA Ratings Podcast. <laughs> I knew I was going to get it right today, but I still fucked it up. Still, Schwan, we're back. Episode 189. We're creeping closer to episode 200, my friend. How are you doing on this cold Tuesday evening? Uh, can't complain, man. Just another day. Just trying to get through this year. It's been a back and forth year, to say the least. So just trying to make it through this year. How uh, how are the girls, man? I know you had a emergency situation to deal with last week. Yeah, uh, one of my daughters messed up her knee. We don't know. They had to go take an X-ray. X-ray was inconclusive, so they're going to schedule an MRI sometime this week, so we can uh, figure out what's going on and if there needs to be surgery or something of that nature. Was she balling? Uh, she yeah, she just at practice came to a jump stop and and I'm not uh, happened. So we'll find out whenever we get this schedule, so we can uh, decide what's going to be the next next step. Man, those jump stops are, are um, pretty scary, my man. I hope she is okay and I hope she um, is able to just do her thing, man, and not have to deal with any serious injury, injuries. How old is she? Uh, she's old, she turns 18 in another week and a half. Okay. Okay. And this is, she's not one of the triplets, is she? Uh, no, she is. They, the oh, other, okay. They, they, they yeah. are 18. Okay. Yeah. The, the other two turn 18 this week and she turns 18 the next. True. 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 Okay. Well, we are sending all of our love out to her. Hopefully she is okay and she recovers well. Um, we have quite a bit to talk about today. Shawan Humes, we're going to be Hitting UFC 256, which is a much better card than I thought it was. I was looking at it to get ready for the show tonight, so we're going to be talking about that. We're talking about Floyd Mayweather versus Logan Paul, some UFC cuts, and much more. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. Starting off with UFC 256 first, where both Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreto are making turns around um, this title fight in less than... I think a little bit less than two weeks, or a little bit more than two weeks. They both fought a couple weeks ago where when Figueredo defeated Alex Perez, and um, I can't remember who Brandon Moreno defeated, but this is a flyweight title fight, 125 pounds, fighting for a five-round uh, main event here. And Figueredo is coming in as, as a massive favorite. He's been looking <clears throat> very dominant at flyweight, stopping a lot of his uh, opponents, dispatching Alex Perez in the first round via guillotine choke. Brandon Moreno also had a first-round stoppage on that very same card. So, Shawan, look at these two guys and, and match them up. What do you see here going down on Saturday? Who do you think will come out on top? Yeah, I'm I'm actually thinking that Figueredo is going to win this fight. The, the main reason is it's the same reason I thought he'd win his other fight. He has such a physical advantage over 90% of the people he fights in division. He's not just comparably athletic to them as far as explosiveness and speed and agility, it, should, it seems now. But physically, he's, I think he actually should be fighting up a weight class. So that gives him advantages in durability, physicality, and then power. I mean, like I said before, when he, he won his last fight, a lot of people took the fight, the win over Joseph Benavidez. It's like Joe, Joe's faded. Joe had nothing left. Joe was just a shell of himself. And all that may be true. It very well may be true that Joe was a shell of himself and Joe was faded. But if you look at Joseph Benavides' record in the last year or two, he was still beating top. He was still beating top level guys. 
maybe he wasn't doing it as dominantly as he was supposed to. Maybe he wasn't finishing guys left and right. But the fact of the matter is when he was fighting ranked guys or higher ranked guys, he was still doing work. You know, he was still beating guys and beating them decisively. The only person he couldn't figure out was Devison Figueredo. So for all of his skills, all of his savvy, all of his veteran experience, he wasn't able to really do anything against Figueredo in two fights in a row. Two fights in a row, he was basically run over by Figueredo. And part of that was Figueredo's skill set, but more of it is just the huge physical advantages he has in a fight. Um, the biggest thing that the biggest problem that Moreno poses is that he's very good at getting out of bad spots. Like you put him in a spot, he can scramble out of it. You get a takedown, he's right back up. You get him into an exchange, he finds ways to counters into when the exchange, the further exchange goes. But all that requires him to wrest control from a disadvantageous position. And Figueredo is very good at putting you in a bad spot and either ending you in that bad spot or just keeping you in that bad spot and chipping you up until he wins. So for Moreno to, for Moreno to be effective, he's got to basically force the pace, not accept any bad positions, and hopefully make Figueredo work till you get to like round through round one, maybe the half of round two, to where the, the cardio may become an issue because this is a tough wake up for Figueredo. Maybe he'll slow a bit. Maybe that strength, those muscles will start sucking up too much oxygen and the strength won't be his factor. The explosiveness won't be a factor. The power won't be as much of a factor. But that's a big if. That's a big if for a guy who really hasn't been put in any bad spots or had opponents really been able to work any way work themselves out of bad spots in the past, what, year, year two, almost three years? He's pretty, he's, he's pretty much just physically dominated everybody. And Moreno, for as tough and scrappy as he is, he's not really physically dominant. Not He's not a, to, a top-tier athlete, and he's not top-tier as far as strength or or power. So it, it's hard for me to imagine how he beats Figueredo straight up unless he can extend him. And what does he need to do to really get out in front and cause that um, extension? You said that he needs to kind of put him in a, in a spot that he hasn't been in yet since he's been a part of, of the UFC. What does uh, Brandon Moreno need to do to make that happen? It's just fighting at a pace. I mean, being able to fight at a really high pace. The only thing is, the higher the pace you fight at, the less, the less defensively disciplined you are, the less careful you are. And the pacing, fighting at a high pace, throwing at a high volume, getting in scrambles, is very is a tool that Moreno uses as a weapon. But the fact of the matter is, against most of the guys he's faced, they haven't been big hitters. They haven't been much physically stronger than him. They haven't been much more durable than him. So it's tit for tat. It comes down to a matter of will and a matter of conditioning. If he's fighting at a high pace against Figueredo, that means he's given as good as he's getting. I believe, I believe Figueredo can take what Moreno has to offer. I don't know that Moreno can take what Figueredo has to offer long enough for him to force the pace. You know, you get taken down, force the scramble. But in forcing that scramble, that means you've got to use extra energy because this is a guy who's much bigger and much stronger than you. If you're going to extend exchanges and really make him work because you're throwing so much volume, throwing so much variety at him, that's fine. But in throwing that volume and variety, you're also making yourself, you're also opening yourself up to be countered and to take punishment. Can Moreno take the punishment that Figueredo takes? I haven't seen him do so. You know, I mean, I haven't seen him handle that kind of punishment. I haven't seen him handle that kind of abuse. And secondly, the few times when he, the biggest issue with Moreno is he can't consistently keep a pace. He's a guy who, explodes into spots, explodes out of spots, explodes into exchanges, or he's or somebody starts an exchange, and towards the end of it, he explodes. 
it's not anything consistent. So I don't even know that if he sets a high pace that he can maintain it for round after round after round. It'd be more like you're fighting at a normal pace and then for a 30, 45 second burst, he's fighting at a crazy pace. But if you're, if you're just gonna fight in spots like that, I don't know that you exhaust Figueredo. And I don't know that, and Moreno hasn't shown that he has the power or finishing ability to just dynamically finish someone in, 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 those, in those moments. So let's talk about Figueredo because um, I also agree. I think he's going to come out uh, retaining his title on Saturday. I think he's just too much of a force right now at 125 pounds. But my question is in reference to his star power. Do we see a situation right now where Davidson Figueredo can become a breakout star at 125 pounds? Can he become a bigger interest and a bigger draw than Demetrius Johnson was at his height when he was dominating that division. It was interesting because today uh, I was ha- having a conversation with my best friend on Twitter. We were going back and forth about uh, Figueredo because it was one of the highlight packages that they had put together, and it was, it was the stills of him getting his hair cut. And I was talking to my friend about how Figueredo is kind of a renaissance man who cooks, he um, cuts hair, he does women's and, and men's hair, I was kind of talking about all that. Is Figueredo the type of individual who his story is so interesting that he can maybe begin to draw people in? Do you think he'll be a bigger attraction than Demetrius Johnson would do or, or was during his height? Uh, I don't think it's hard to beat that because for the most part, if you want to go from the uh, culture or the, or the group, I would think Figueredo is more of a hero among his own people than Demetrius Johnson was among his group of people. I just think maybe Figueredo has a fan base in Brazil that Demetrius Johnson just didn't have in America, even among, even among black fight fans. I don't know that he was the most popular fighter out there. Because um, Figueredo is a little bit more open and willing to show aspects of himself and kind of play up to being a fighter and make it fun and engage a little bit. I think he has more potential. Just because he's willing to engage, Demetrius Johnson, for as good as he was, he was never willing to engage into the playful or the more char- character aspects of being a fighter. You know, when he said it's just another day at the office, you know, is this your biggest threat? No, it's just another fight. Are you worried about breaking the record? No, I'm just going to do my job to the best of my ability. He didn't do himself any favors in selling fights. He didn't do any fa- himself any favors in selling himself. He wanted to be straight up, and that's what he was, and... While he had a certain amount of fans, he, he, he never broke through because he, did, he didn't really have a way to reach out to other people, in my opinion. I think Figueredo has that, but I don't know that he stays in this weight class. I, I really think this weight's tough for him to make. Um, like this, this fight being so quick should help him. Then again, maybe staying at a low weight might hurt him. Maybe it hurts him, and, and, he's, and his resistance isn't there. There's just so many questions when you have a guy who's had a tough time making weight and who a lot of his, a lot of his success is based on his size and durability and physical strength. So to be a star at this division, I don't know because I don't know how long he can stay at it. Does he have the potential to turn himself into a bit of a star overall as a fighter? Possibly, because I think he has some charisma. I think he has an interesting storyline. I think he's willing to play up to the comedian and play up to the fans. But as far as the weight divi- the division, I'm not sure that a year from now he's still fighting in this division. You know, if he loses at all, I would expect him to move up the very next the, the very next fight and to be quite honest, if he wins this fight and maybe one other, I, I'd expect maybe if he wins over Cody, I expect him to move up either way. In the next two fights, I expect him to move it up to weight class, to be quite honest. 
So I don't know that he's the star for this division. I, I think he could be a star in general, though. How long do you think he remains at this weight class? Uh, maybe another six to eight months. Let's see. He has one fight. He wins this fight. If everything comes out right, it's probably another three or four months till the Cody fight, right? So then that one, and then maybe he stays for one other fight, possibly. If he beats Cody, he probably moves up. If he loses to Cody, he probably moves up. So six, eight months, maybe I would think of the most. I mean, he's that'll be a, that'll give him, what, three, four fights in the division if everything goes right. So yeah, maybe another six to eight months. I, I just don't see him staying there. I don't think there's a lot of paydays here either. And um, if he moves up, there's more names, there's more money, there's more opportunity. He's already been a champion here, especially if he can move up undefeated. He's undefeated champion going to claim a belt at a higher higher level and that you know that could open up some other fights if he if he can pull the hat trick but i don't i don't know that he can how long do you think um excuse me at 135 do you think he remains a title threat at that new weight class title threat yeah because i think his he still have a speed advantage because he'll be more accustomed to fighting smaller fighters I would assume his cardio would be a little bit better if he gets pushed. Um, he won't be able to take the shots he takes at this weight. He won't be able to. I think it's like Andrade, where he'll still have physical advantages. They just won't be as they won't be they won't be as obvious at this weight class. He can crush guys physically. Up another weight class, he'll still be able to get advantageous positions. He'll be able to get out of advantageous disadvantageous positions, but it's going to take more energy. It's going to take more work, and it, it, it's pro- probably going to have a higher price for him to pay to use skills like i said he's got a he's got technical skills but it's hard to really gauge them when he's so much more physical and so much more powerful than the guys he faced you know i mean when he snatches submission the submission doesn't have to be all the way on the minute he squeezes it's done some guy takes him down and tries to take it out he can physically just wrench him off his legs or physically hold guys down whether he's using good technique or not he can actually hold guys down who are doing the right things to get back up because he just has that physical physical extra up that extra little kick physically that won't exist at, at the next next weight class but he still will have a quickness advantage and i expect his cardio to be much better so let's move on to this co-main event here where i forgot that the co-main event was scheduled for this card tony ferguson and charles Oliveira. this is an important fight at 155 pounds especially for charles Oliveira, who's continued to exceed expectations um as he's kind of as he's gotten his this is probably his third run towards a a title during his time in the ufc but before we talk about the fight breakdown i want to talk about the fact that tony ferguson said if charles Oliveira comes in three to four pounds overweight like he's done in the past he's not going to fight him schwan do you think that that happens and does uh, charles Oliveira miss weight that's the first question um I, I mean, I, I kind of think of him as a man of his word, so I could see him just totally pulling out. But then again, I, I don't know that that would do anything good for his career at this point. He hasn't he hasn't fought in a long time. In the last fight he was in, he was just it was a one sided beating. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of momentum right now, and even though he has a high ranking, it's a real shaky ranking considering the fact that he got dominated by Justin Gaethje, and Justin Gaethje turned around and got dominated by Khabib. The the gap between him and the elite has never seen further so i guess if he's a man of his principles he can stand on it i just don't know how the ufc takes that and i don't know what it does for him moving forward 
And so one, I, one I don't of, think if, if a situation has happens all, like that, I don't think has Oliver missed weight lightweight before? Is that is that a hell common yeah. thing? Uh, I think he has at one fifty five. I definitely know he did at one forty five. I feel like he has missed weight at one fifty five as well. As a matter of fact, now I'm sitting here thinking about it. Did he miss weight for Kevin Lee? I don't Did think. He, um, let me let me look real quick. I'm not. It's just weird to me. This came out of blue. I'm like, well, where did this come out from? I don't. I don't recall him missing weight a ton of times. I've never been the biggest Charles Oliveira fan, so maybe there's that. But I don't remember him missing a ton of weight. Not at 55, 45. Yeah, I know he did against uh, Anthony Pettis, but I, I just don't recall him missing weight many times at all. Uh, so I know was, I think Lee uh, missed. Let's... When he fought Lee, Lee missed weight. Lee missed weight, yeah. So he missed weight against Charles, uh, or excuse me, he missed weight against Ricardo Lamas. That was at 45. Missed weight against Miles Jury. That was at 45. And he missed weight against Jeremy Stevens. That was at 45. He missed weight against Cub Swanson at 45. And yeah, he has missed weight. He missed weight against Efrain Escudero at 155 when he came in at 159. But that was all the way back in 20. That was 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, is this a weird thing to say? I mean, maybe he's heard some rumors or something, but um, that's just a weird thing to say. And then he said, if he misses, did he, didn't he say if he misses weight by too much? Or is it if he misses weight at all? Uh, well, from what I saw is that if Ferguson, Ferguson said that if, let me see, let me pull it up now because I had to piece up. Ferguson said if Charles Oliveira shows up three to four pounds overweight, he's not fighting. Well, like I said, it is his it is his career. There are certain advantages that come when you don't make weight. I just don't know what this means for him moving forward. I mean, I, I respect him stepping out of it, but he's not getting Michael Chandler next, I don't think. And I don't know what elite guy he's going to get. I mean, Charles Oliveira is probably right about the level of guy he, he's going to get unless he fights maybe a Dan Hooker or something of that nature. Or maybe Dan Hooker is in shape and Dan Hooker takes the fight because he, he said he's always ready to go. But... At, at this stage, the gap between him and the elite is pretty far, and I, I just don't know what they do if he doesn't choose to fight. I don't know what he does. The UFC is not always very fond of people passing on fights. They, they've never seen a react too well to that. So let's talk about that gap between fighters and the elite here, because this is a big, big, a big um, challenge, a big test for Charles Oliveira and for Tony uh, Ferguson, in my opinion. How do, you, how do you see this fight playing out, Sean? Well, I mean, to me, it's the same. It's the same thing that is every Tony Ferguson fight, because he seems to want to attack people with the strengths. He wants to engage in these firefights and these brawls and these high, high-paced action fights to basically break his opponents. It's what he. It's what he's always done. And um, I mean, he he's got experience advantage over Charles Oliveira. I would previously say he has a durability and conditioning advantage. But after you take a beating like that, and the fact that almost every fight he's had in the past three to five years has has resulted in him going multiple rounds and taking extensive beatings, I don't know that his chin is where it used to be. I don't know that his recovery, recuperative abilities are, are where it used to be. And fight IQ is something you don't really develop overnight, and he hasn't really shown a lot of it, to be quite honest. He's always fought the wrong fight, at least for the first round and a half against everybody's fought. He's made his fights more difficult. Um, the biggest thing about Charles Oliveira is, for once, he's facing a guy that if the guy takes him down, that guy can finish. If he scrambles and gets on top of that guy, that guy can still finish. If they just get in scrambles in her transition, that guy can finish. He hasn't really faced a lot of guys who are 
grappling threats, if you really think about it. Maybe Kevin Lee, possibly, but he's not great off his back. He's not really great in transition, and that's about it. I feel Desanos has grappling skills, but Desanos was engaging in a, in a back-and-forth striking battle with him. So he really hasn't faced a guy who could actually grapple with him, to be honest. So this will be the first time he's faced a guy who can make him pay for mistakes that he, mistakes that he makes. And I, I think that changes the nature of the fight uh, dramatically. Um, I, I don't know what to expect from this fight because I don't know who Tony is after the fight, after the beating he had with Justin Gaethje. Because previous, previously to that, we've seen him rock, we've seen him drop. I've never seen him react to strikes the way he re- reacted when he fought Gaethje. And he took basically five rounds of punishment. It wasn't like a quick knockout. Those aren't bad. They look bad, but they're not. Because it's you absorbing a minimum amount of punishment. He took a lot of punishment all fight long from Gaethje. And that's the kind of thing you just don't bounce back from, especially that late in your career, that late in your age. So um, it's, it's really hard for me to know what to expect from Tony because I don't know physically what he's got left. Um, all I know is he's going to do what he always does, which is challenge his opponent in their strength and put himself in positions where he can lose the fight. And if he doesn't lose, then he essentially breaks his opponent mentally and wears him out. But like I said, I don't know where he's at physically anymore. I, I mean, this is probably the, one of the safest fights you could go for him just because Oliveira isn't a truly elite guy himself. And beating Tony, beating Tony doesn't make him elite in my eyes at this point. I probably would have tried a Dan Hooker, someone who's dangerous and tough, but someone who has less ways to finish this fight. Oliveira's striking has gotten better. He's still one of the better. He's still a pretty good athlete. I think he might even be a better athlete than Tony. And in, in transitions or scrambles, on the ground, he is one of the better finishers in the UFC. So um, I, I don't know. I, I just I don't know if I can favor. I've ne- I've never really been a favor of Tony Tony Ferguson, his fight style or him in fights. So I guess I don't need to start now. He'll he'll probably win, but I, I'm just gonna go and say Oliveira is gonna pull this one out. So you talked a lot about the intangibles between the two men, and there's something that. There's something about Charles Oliveira. I've been a fan of his for a very long time um, throughout his his UFC run, but he has let me down a couple of different times because it looks like his, sometimes it looks like his durability just isn't there. Look back at the way he lost to, I think it was Cub Swanson that pop shot at him and basically got him out of there. And um, the injury he had against Max Holloway or the way he wilted against Paul Felder, a lot of those different situations. And you wonder what his, where, like where his mental capacity is in these high octane situations that we know Tony Ferguson brings. Have you seen a lot of difference in Oliveira during this current run that makes you think that that is no longer an issue or is that something that you think is still popped back up? I think I think durability is always an issue. I don't think it's something that necessarily improves over over the length of a career. I mean, I don't really even know, know that he's physically incapable of taking shots because he's taking some pretty big shots from big people. It's not like every time someone touches him, he, he crumbles. What seems to be the issue is mentally, there's only so much he's willing to take, and everybody has a limit. It just seems like his limit is a little bit lower than others. I I want to say part of that is because he used to have a, cer- a, a certain amount of technical holes in his stand-up that were exploited. And secondly, he was just so, he would just go all out, either in striking or in submissions. 
And as a result, he will get himself in positions where he's going to take a huge amount of punishment and be gassed because he's exploding into these submissions. He's exploding to finish. He's exploding to get out of positions. He's exploding to get into position. And you know, if you explode and give 100% to get into this position or get out of it, and then someone starts hitting you, it's really hard for you to recover because you're trying to recover your, you're trying to get your energy back. You're trying to get your breath back. You really can't defend yourself. You can't really take a lot of punishment in that spot. It's probably when the spot when you're most vulnerable physically and mentally. So I think a lot of his finishes have been, A, because of weight. I think fighting at 45 really kind of subjected him to being more susceptible to being finished. And I think, B, a lot of the reasons he was getting finished or, or hurt so much is because of the fighting style he had. He didn't work through spots. Even as a grappler, a good grappler, he wasn't a guy who was working from A to D. It was jumping from A to D. It wasn't A, B, C, D, E. It was A to E or A to D, then to E. He would skip steps using his length and his explosiveness to force things. And so when he missed them, he'd just be in a terribly bad position and he'd be totally gassed. And the same thing on his feet. He was, he was depending on his length and his aggression instead of setting up his strikes, using a variety of strikes, placing his strikes better. He's doing all these things better now. So I don't think he's going, I don't, I don't know that he's more durable. But I know that he's a little bit more precise than what he's doing offensively, which as a result makes him safer and more, more defensively responsible. So he's harder to get to. I don't know that he's harder to finish as far as his toughness, but I believe he's harder to get to because of he's being so more, much more disciplined in his striking. And plus, since he's being more disciplined in his striking, he's doing more damage while you're attempting to hit him. Before, he would just be throwing all sorts of stuff out there, not really landing clean, exhausting himself while getting chipped up. Now he's throwing powerful, well-set-up strikes without serving himself up for counters. So I think the reason he's not getting stopped as much is because he's become a better, more disciplined fighter. Not because he's more durable. Plus, he's, he's been fighting guys who aren't really good strikers. I mean, Jim Miller, not a great striker. Uh, Nick Lentz, not a great striker. Jared Gordon, dynamic striker, but not really a great striker. Kevin Lee, I mean, he's a comp- competent striker, but he's, he, he's, he's not very well developed himself, and he's not, he doesn't have great cardio. So it's been the combination of his improvements and fighting guys who don't have the skill set or the physical tools to exploit his holes. And like I said, I don't know that Tony has them anymore either. I, I don't know where his chin's at. I don't know where his chin's at. I don't know where his recuperative abilities are at. If you tell me those things are 100%, I'll tell you Tony wins. But there's no one, nobody's going to be, nobody's going to convince me they're 100% because for the past three or four years, we've seen him get rocked, dropped, and stunned in almost every single fight he has been in. That's not a good sign, especially when at the last fight he's been in, he was knocked out on his feet numerous times. So you tell me Tony's 100%, cool, I'll say he's a, he's a lot to win. And he, he, he probably should win. But I don't think he's 100%. And if he's not 100% and he's still making the mistakes he makes in fights, he's going to lose and, and lose in dynamic fashion. So let me see. Who, who um, if that's, let me back up. I, I can't really talk right now. If either man wins on Saturday, are they both a shoe in for a title shot at 155? Or do they have to win and then do something else? Well, Charles Oliveira, he's thinking if he beats this fight, wins this fight, he's considered elite. I don't necessarily agree because I don't think Tony's elite anymore. I think until Tony shows me differently, I haven't thought skill-wise he's been elite in years. And and he hasn't really beaten a lot of elite guys in years. If you look at his his record recently, you know, Pettis, Cerrone, uh, that's not elite opposition. And same thing for Justin Gaethje. Justin Gaethje wasn't beating a a lot of elite opposition either, for that matter. So right now, Oliveira is trying to prove he's elite 
so that he can get guys who have got a name, maybe a Poirier, maybe a McGregor if he's lucky, maybe a Chandler if he's lucky. He's nowhere near a title shot. He hasn't done enough work, not with his, not with his resume in the past couple of years. Tony Ferguson, beating Alex Oliveira just doesn't do it for me. He's got to beat someone else. He's got to beat someone else. He's got to beat a McGregor. He's got to beat a Poirier. I mean, beating Dan Hooker is really just another a lesser skill, a lesser skill, lesser athletic version, maybe more durable version of Charles Oliveira. I, I don't know who he'd have to be to get a title fight, but he'd have to win at least one other fight, at least one. Maybe he has to fight Michael Chandler. You know, um, neither one of them is in the title title talks. Neither one of them should be in the title talks. They're gonna have to win at least one, possibly two fights. Charles Oliveira is probably gonna have to win two. Tony Ferguson is probably gonna have to win at least one more fight after this, and I'm not sure how confident I am against betting against, betting for him against anybody with any sort of elite kind of talent in the division. I, I just know Khabib's not coming back to fight uh, Tony Ferguson or Charles Oliveira. That's not going to get it done. There's no way that gets the job done. Good stuff there, sir. That's some good analysis. I am, I'm really looking forward to that fight. I completely forgot. It was on this card. There are a couple other fights that are definitely worth covering as well on um, Saturday. I think they, I think there's going to be a lot of good action. Let's start with. I want to start. I'm going to skip over this Renato um, uh, Carnerio fight. Do you really want to talk about that? Do you want to dive into that one? All right. I could pass. I take it or leave it. I, I'm not really invested in in, in Moicano. I mean. Just another chance to see if he established himself with the new weight division. He's got talent, but he, he's got to put some wins together. He's got to put wins together against named guys. If he, he wants to really gain traction, which he doesn't have yet, as of yet. Perfect. Well, let's I'll talk have. about this Kevin Holland fight then. Kevin Holland and Jacare Sosa. Um, so Kevin Holland has been <clears throat> bounced around a little bit as of late because of fight changes. And now he has a tough opponent in... Jacare, former Strike Force champion. We know who Jacare is. Is this too much? I, like, I didn't even realize Kevin Holland's record was what it was. He's 20 and 5, and he's a rather kind of newish face for the UFC. Is this more of a coming out party for him? And this is going to tie into something we're going to talk about later on tonight. But if Souza loses, I think he's on a chopping block. Hang on to that topic because we'll talk about that a little bit later. But is this a coming out fight for Kevin Holland? Do you think he'll be able to excel in this contest? The way a lot of people are really picking him to. I mean, if there's a time for him to win, this this will be it. Souza's kind of had two different careers in the UFC, and um, neither one of them resulted in a in a world championship. You would think the you know he's on the he's on, he's obviously in a physical decline. He's not nearly as durable as he used to be. He's not nearly as explosive as he used to be. He's on a two fight losing streak. Um, the few wins he's had is over Chris Weidman, which that, that win doesn't really mean anything nowadays anymore. Um, beating Derek Brunson, I mean, that's depending on what night or what month you get Derek Brunson in, that's a good win or it's just a terrible win. If you look on this list of wins, beating a faded Vitor Belfort, Chris Camozzi, Tim Boach, Derek Brunson, Chris Weidman, his wins are all against guys who were either just terribly inconsistent. Yeah, either ter- terribly inconsistent, terribly inconsistent, or guys who are like athletically flawed just because of their age. He hasn't consistently beaten guys with top end athleticism, or, or to be quite honest, younger guys. 
you know, he, I, I honestly think that he just, I just think he's on decline. I don't know that he physically has what it takes to, to win at the UFC level anymore. He's still tough. He's still a fairly tough out. He, he's still strong. He still hits hard. He's shown some development in his, his striking. His striking is a little bit more smoother. And it's more deliberate than it used to be. It used to just be reliable. But that's partly because he's faded athletically. His, his striking is a little bit more complex. It's more complete. It's a little bit more balanced, a little bit more defensively responsible. It's a little bit more purposeful. But he's not super slick defensively. He's, he's not dynamic as a striker. He's, he's fairly predictable as a striker. He's never been a great wrestler technically. And while he's a good, gra- good grappler, uh, a lot of he's, it's gotten harder for him to get fights where he needs them to be and keep fights where he needs to be because his, his athleticism isn't there and his cardio isn't there. So there's a time for Kevin Holland to win this fight. This would be it. He's younger. He's more athletic. He's got less miles on him. And he's, he's on an upswing. Uh, Jacare is clearly on a downswing. Uh, a loss for Jacare is just another loss, you know, just another sign that he, he, he's probably past it. He, he's used up all his nine lives as a fighter. A loss for Kevin Holland is a setback just because because uh, Sousa's been so vulnerable recently. He hasn't lost a terrible opposition, but he just hasn't looked good. He hasn't been dominant against anybody with any sort of youth or athleticism. But it'd be a big setback for Kevin Holland. Um, I'm just going to go with Holland. I feel like Sousa has the ability to win this fight. I just don't know how bad he wants it, and I don't know that his body can hold up to to make up for the mistakes that he still makes as a fighter. He's He's improved. But when you've gotten by on athleticism and physical strength and intimidation for so long and those things go away, it's really hard to navigate that. Um, Holland's not a great fighter. I don't, I don't think Holland's a great fighter. I don't think his level of opposition has been great either. It just, it just, this would seem to be the spot where they're trying to get Jacques Ray out of the picture and have a guy build around a new guy. And this seems they're trying to give him Jacques Ray at a time when Jacques Ray is most vulnerable. So, I mean... Jock Ray could win this fight. He's experienced enough. He's still a good finisher. He's still a hard hitter. He's still tough and seasoned. But it just seems like he doesn't have that extra kick anymore um, when fights get tough. Now, if he just gets a quick submission or early on asserts himself, then yeah, it might be trouble for Holland. But the longer the fight goes and the higher the pace the fight is fought at, the uh, more of a risk that Jock Ray's going to be put at it every second he's in the cage to lose. So... We're going to talk about the cuts that are coming in a bit, but should Sosa be on notice? Do you think that UFC is watching this fight and saying, okay, if he goes out here and he loses, or he looked, or even if he wins, and let's say he looks bad, and that not necessarily bad, but he doesn't put on a star, uh, a show stopping performance, should he be concerned? Um, I mean, I think he should. He, I don't know how much his name value is. You know, I mean, he's got some name value, but at this point, he's he's not winning. He he's on a two fight losing streak. He hasn't looked great in in really years. He's for every fight he's won, he's lost like what one or two. Um, and I, I'm sure Jacare is not cheap. That's the biggest thing. I don't think he's a cheap fighter to have. So the reason I think they're making cuts is they're trying to lower the budget and bring in fighters who don't cost as much. And I can't justify having Jacare on the roster when he's incapable of putting wins together and he's losing to guys like Kevin Holland, who's not a bad fighter, once again, when you're a guy of Jacare's caliber who's accomplished what he's accomplished, you're not supposed to lose to guys like Kevin Holland. And if he can't beat Kevin Holland or Kevin Gastelones, there's no reason to keep him around. He's just a guy who's going to probably knock off some of your younger prospects 
and you're going to have to pay a whole lot of money for him to do so. It, it's not worth the juice isn't worth the squeeze. I, I think he's very much on the edge of being cut. All right, so that's going to be a running topic that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks about these guys who, guys and women, because we saw Rachel, Rachel Ostovich get cut yesterday. So we're going to be talking about these guys and women that may be on the cusp of being sent about their way. And I think that Sosa can be one of those individuals. Um, we have another fight scheduled that I'm looking forward to as well. Mackenzie Dern versus Verin, Vern, Vernia Janjiroba. I think I said her last name right and fucked up her first name. But this is a fight right here that has high-level grappling written all over it. We all know who Mackenzie Dern is, ADCC champion, and she's probably probably the best women's grappler, Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, artist in the sport. We could pretty much call her that at this point in time. She's performed at that level as well. And she's facing off against a woman who is is a submission threat in her own right. We saw what she did to Felice Herrick, and I know a lot of people kind of denigrate that one and say, oh, was Felice Herrick? Well, Felice Herrick's been in this industry for the better part of 15 years, I believe, and she had never been stopped before um, before that fight. Not only was she stopped, but she only threw one punch before she got put out of there. So that kind of shows you just how um, impressive Janjaroba was. Talk to me about this fight, Shawn. What do you expect to see here, and what is really kind of standing out to you in reference to this? Should I be as interested in this fight as I really am right now? Uh, I mean, yeah, you're you're a big grappling guy. These are two people with grappling chops and who's shown to be a cut above the other fighters in the division. I mean, if you're really being honest, outside of Amanda Rivas, nobody really should get into extended exchanges on the ground with either, either one of these fighters. No, no, you know, no, no one really should be able to. Nobody's would that, that would be the opposite game plan anybody would have when face these two fires. You force them to take you down, beat them up on the feet, and just either get back up very quickly or just don't let them take you down. That's really the answer for both fighters. Um, the only unfortunate thing about this is often when you have two grapplers who are good at finishing and or controlling people on the ground, you end up nine times out of ten in a sloppy striking, striking and maybe a sloppy wrestling-based fight. And that's what I think is going to end up happening. I think John DeRoba is, isn't going to be as easily swayed to get into a striking battle. But I think that Mackenzie Dern is the bigger, stronger athlete. I think if she wants to stay on the feet, she can. And I, I, even though she's not a great technical striker, I think she's, she hits harder. And I think she's a little bit more aggressive on the feet. And she's got so much faith in her striking that she's not going to be afraid to go after John DeRoba in the way that many other fighters are. Um, and even though John, and even though, like I said, Dern isn't great on the feet, she's a will, she's at least willing to sell sell out an exchange. John DeRoba seems real scared, a little skittish on the feet, and just is desperate to get those takedowns and desperate to get into those grappling exchanges. And yeah, I think that's going to be the difference. Mackenzie Dern probably can threaten, at least be competent in, in two areas. Obviously, she's a world class grappler, so not competent, but she's a threat in two areas. Maybe not the most technical threat, but a threat. John DeRoba is really only a, t a threat on the ground. And against someone like Mackenzie Dern, I, I can't imagine that the even if she gets to fight to the ground, it's not, not like she's based on paper. She shouldn't just dominate position on paper. She shouldn't just be able to snatch a quick submission. So um, I have to go with a fighter who's shown a little bit more in multiple ranges of mixed martial arts. And that would be Mackenzie Dern. And if I'm correct, Mackenzie Dern's probably fought better opposition than John DeRoba, if I'm not correct. Well, John Jarob was only fought in the UFC once. Um, 
and she has that win. Uh, she has the win over what's the lady's name? Um, Herrick? Please Herrick. She has that win over Herrick, but uh, she was in Invicta before. So yeah, she's fought the tougher um, the tougher opponents, but John Gerardo has only has had one fight so far in the UFC. Yeah, I, I would just say the experience level, fighting at this level, fighting better athletes, fighting people with, you know, like, Aranda Rivas is a very strong, explosive, well-balanced fighter. I don't know that John DeRobo's fought anybody like that. And fighting Felice Herrick off of, what, a two-year two hiatus? I mean, it's an impressive win because Felice is Felice, but from what I understand, she didn't have a camp and she hadn't fought in two years. How impressive really is that win? You know, the fight, the win over Randa Marcus is more impressive than that. Hell, a win over Hannah Cyphers, who is least as active, is more impressive than a win over a Felice Herrick, who hasn't fought in two years and is coming off a major injury. It, it just takes some of the shine off of it. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying she can't finish her. I'm not saying she can't grapple her. But I, we do know for a fact one fighter has at least been able to hold her own, and I say hold her own loosely, against UFC-type competition on the feet. That's been Mackenzie Dern. One fighter has at least shown the mentality and the will to fight her way out of bad spots and to keep fighting even when she's taking a beating. That's Mackenzie Dern. Only thing we know about John DeRobo is she's a great grappler. She's not very comfortable on the feet. We don't know how she takes punishment. We don't know if she can push the pace. We don't know if she can fight through adversity. We don't know what happens when, when she faces someone who, who's not afraid to grapple with her. She might fall completely apart. We know these things about Mackenzie Dern. So I have to go with the fighter that I know more about as far as the level of composition, their mentality, and their physical ability. All those things favor Kenzie Dern. Yeah, and that's the fight I'm, I'm actually looking forward to as well. Is there anything else? Go ahead. Would if she gets submitted, would he be like, oh, my God. Like, if you got submitted, submitted by an M- Kenzie Dern gets submitted, will her dad take her black belt and throw her out of the house? No, I've <laughs> never – I've seen Amanda – oh, excuse me. Mackenzie Dern almost gets submitted one time, and it was by, it was in a, it was right before she went MMA full-time, and it was in, like, a a grappling super fight against, um, was it Julie Kedzie? It was some other woman who does MMA, and the woman that she was fighting, I jumped into a ridiculous-ass armbar setup. And it was fully extended. It was one of those drains where you're like, her arm is going to fucking break if she does not tap to that. So it was fully extended and it was there. But um, Mackenzie Dern was like, it almost like she tapped, or excuse me, she she refused to tap, so she didn't want she didn't want to be embarrassed, and um, fought her way through it. That was the only yeah. time. Uh, let me see. So let me see. I can't imagine her tapping. I I, I really don't think she's gonna tap. She gets caught. She's either going to go out or she's going to have something torn apart. I, I can't imagine her tapping. Let me see. Who was it? Because um, now I'm curious. I can't remember who it was. Um, hold on one second. Give me one second. Because now I'm curious. I'm like, I know I saw this. And it was a woman that showed no. Because everyone was expecting her to get stomped in this super fight, and she almost ripped Mackenzie Dern's arm clean off her body. And now I got to see if anybody has that match. Um, let me see. Let me see. I found it in two seconds. Um, 
Maybe I can't find it. Nope, they don't have it here. Of course they don't. Um, because it's one where she almost lost. So I I can't remember who it was, but yeah, she definitely almost got her arm ripped off. This is probably back in was it Michelle Nicolini? I I know you know her, but this was that this was a while back. And um, yeah, that's the closest I've ever seen her get almost get um submitted. She got well, she got submitted in 2017 by a woman I know as well too. But that's 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 a little bit different. They were in the geek. Um, so let's, what else? Is there anything else that stands out on this card that, that you're interested in watching? UFC 256 is much deeper than I thought it was going to be. So is there anything else that stands out on this event that you're looking forward to watching? Um, I mean, in, I mean, I'm interested to see what Cub Swanson has left at this point. I mean, he, he hasn't had the greatest go of it. See if he can work himself back into contention. And, um, you know, as always, Junior DeSantos is in heavyweight division and any point you could put a three or four fight win streak together and be right into title contention once again. So outside of that, I mean, there's a lot of good fights, but um, not fights that I'm particularly invested past third point in. So, um, all right, then we'll, we'll move on and we'll talk about some of the other news stories. We got quite a bit to cover um, on this show. And the first thing is the UFC's struggle with COVID-19. Now, Let's fast forward or rewind the clock back to like May or something like that. UFC took a total of maybe six weeks off from um, having fights. If, if that, they were the first sport back. Um, you know, professional wrestling is not a sport. It never stops, so they don't count. But they were the first sport back, and they basically didn't slow down. They've been putting on events at an impressive pace since. But... As the rest of the world has been dealing with COVID-19 and watching their numbers slowly increase, um, especially like in the United States right now, we're seeing another surge basically from what occurred during um, people traveling, 90 million people traveling during Thanksgiving. We're seeing a, a second surge now. MMA has also seen a surge in fights getting canceled because of people having issues with COVID-19. And on Saturday's card, this last Saturday's card, you saw four fights drop off. The main event fell off. And then the night of three fights fell off. Angela Hill, she just um, announced she's out of a fight. Uh, Michelle Watterson, she's in, she's out of a fight. So many people are falling out of fights left and right. And it's coming out slowly that UFC isn't having as much of a bubble as they thought, as people thought that they were in, in, in Vegas. They're inviting people to Vegas. People are coming up. Um, getting tested and then going back out into public. UFC's telling them to quote unquote be smart about it, but people are going back out in the public, then showing up for um, showing up for testing before the weigh-ins, and we're seeing people basically fail tests left and right. So, Schwan, what are your thoughts about this? And are you surprised in in seeing how this is being handled and seeing that all this is popping up right now? I'm not really surprised because, as the UFC said, we don't have employees. We have independent contractors. So they'll make recommendations. They'll do their part. But for the rest of it, they're just going to leave it up to your own discretion because obviously we know the UFC doesn't care a a whole lot about pay because they don't pay these guys very much. So if a guy gets sick and basically eliminates himself from a potential payday, the UFC will still run the card. They'll find a short-term replacement or do whatever it is they're going to do, and, and they'll go about their business. Unlike the NBA, which needs the players, and NFL that needs especially at least certain players, the UFC doesn't really need any any fighters. I mean, 
except the biggest ones. And even even without the biggest ones in this pandemic, they've been doing, you know, uh, record-breaking numbers as far as they, they're going. So um, it's really on to the fighters to depend on how much they need, the money they need, and how much their career is important to them. It's a matter of professionalism. The UFC is only doing, I don't want to say the bare minimum, but essentially the bare minimum as it comes to um, testing and maintaining any sort of rule, rules or guidelines that are going to help hinder or slow any exposure or the growth of, of COVID. You know, like they said, people can come, they take their tests, you can go back in the streets. No offense, but if you have a fight coming up, why would you go and hang out? Why wouldn't you just get room service? Why wouldn't you just, you and your team stay in their room? You know, you, 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 you need the money. You're trying to get momentum. You're trying to build your brand. It's really hard to do those things when you're out of contention or out of, out of fighting for, you know, one to two, for two weeks to a month. And that's not even assuming that after you have COVID, that you don't have some kind of longstanding uh, physical issues that might impede your performance moving forward. So, um, like I said, the UFC is just handling it the way they would treat independent contractors. And I'm kind of shocked these fighters aren't making better decisions or just isolating themselves so that they can um, get these opportunities and make this money. Because I keep being told how much they need the money, yet at every they seem to be okay with taking unnecessary risks to um it which is costing them fights which is essentially costing them money yeah i, I think it, this is a situation that we really have to monitor because there there's a lot at play here in one hand there's the ufc and mma as a whole being kind of flipped to the global pandemic that's going on. You know, we've talked about this. You, you see people in the sports space talk about it who cover MMA that this is a this is a sport that has lended itself to a lot of what's the word I want to look for? A lot of um, misinformation about the global pandemic. And this is an example of such. It says a lot about the UFC as well, too, because as you mentioned, these people are independent contractors. They're not real employees. It's not like the NBA where they built a huge bubble that they protected their uh, players. Same thing with the NHL where, I mean, they had 600 and some odd NBA players get tested for the start of this season. I think only 48 of them, 8% of them um, failed a COVID-19 test. NHL put all their um, their their playoffs on last last this past spring or fall without any positive tests. What does this say about the UFC that they're having all of this pop up now and they do not seem to be addressing it? I, I don't know that it says anything that we didn't know about the UFC. Their 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 loyalty is to the UFC. If we have enough fighters to put a card on, we're going to. If we had to get a replacement, we're going to. If we don't if we just lose the fight, we just lose the fight. As long as the product is still getting out there. The UFC really doesn't care, and the UFC doesn't have to. They're making hand over fist money, hand over fist, because they don't have to rent it. They don't have to cover the expenses for having live, you know, live events. They're making more on pay per view. They've got the money from ESPN. I don't expect the UFC to handle this any differently because they don't need, for the major- for the most part, they don't need a majority of these fighters. They're not big enough names. They don't have big enough brands for the UFC to care if they fight or if they don't. What's shocking to me is that fighters aren't educating themselves on the pandemic and fighters themselves aren't taking every precaution to keep from getting COVID. Whether that means you get there, you get to your hotel room early and you spend some extra money to stay in a hotel room or you stay in a house and 
you stay to yourself in a room away from everybody or whatever you need to do, it's shocking to me that they're not taking those steps because they're the ones ultimately affected by this. Who's to say that the UFC doesn't say, well, you know what? You didn't, we feel like you weren't necessarily being disciplined enough and you, you missed a fight because you weren't being careful. That, that, maybe that's some, maybe that's the reason they start cut, they cut some people. Maybe, maybe somebody's had health issues because they missed a fight with COVID and they had another issue come up. So now they can't fight. Maybe that's another reason they cut people. They won't say that, but maybe it's an underlying issue. I mean, the UFC is going to do what they're going to do because their brand is the UFC and that's their main concern. What's shocking to me, once again, is that fighters are not doing anything and everything in their power to minimize their exposure. I don't care if the UFC says I can leave my hotel after I got there. Why would I want to? Why can't I figure something else out? If the money's not that good and you can barely pay your bills, what's the money like when the fight gets postponed or the, or the fight just gets replaced and you've, you've wasted money on a camp and you didn't get paid for fighting? You didn't even get show money. I think this, and you, and you hinted at that because it says a lot to me about fighters positioning within the UFC about their leverage. Because when you see people are dropping out of fights, they're getting replaced like nobody's business. Tisha Torres um, needed an opponent because Angela Hill fell out. Uh, I believe it was Angela Hill who was supposed to fight Tisha, Tisha Torres this weekend. But they replaced her with someone from LFA on three days' notice. And you see this happening, people popping up left and right, hopping on these cars, willing to, willing to fight. This is really, it, this is yet another example that shows just how little leverage fighters have in this, in this position. And it's an unfortunate, and it's unfortunate that a global pandemic is, is occurring and these fighters still won't do anything to earn to up their value because clearly the UFC is telling them we can replace you at, at, at a moment's notice. And we're going to use that to kind of segue into the situation about these fighters getting cut because Dana White said they're going to cut close to 60 fighters by the end of this year over the next few weeks. Yeah, and we just saw, uh, say it again. I said, yeah. And, and I don't know that I don't know why they're cutting people, but I have to think people who can't make fights or, you know, they know everything that goes on the city. They're having a fight in Las Vegas and the guy comes in a hotel and then doesn't come back until late at night or whatever they're doing up there. Maybe they know something that we don't. And that person gets cut. Why did I get cut? I'm on a two fight win streak. Yeah, but you got pulled from this one fight. Well, I couldn't control that. Well, other people went in their hotel room and sat there. You took off. Well, I had to train. Yeah, but we know people around town. You weren't just training. So let's talk about that because there's a couple of different things I, I, I want to bring out when talking about these um, cuts that are coming. So you said you don't know why fighters are being cut. I personally believe a part of it is a, you see this in sports. Fighters get, or athletes get massive deals. And sometimes those deals outweigh the person's value. Um, that is that is a thing in professional sports. I mean, we just saw Cam Newton get basically get cut from the Carolina Panthers. He's now a um, he's now a New England Patriot. I mean, you've seen it in basketball. It happens a lot there. People just don't want, like they happen with Carmelo Anthony multiple times, and so many different examples of when it's happened. So now we're looking at the UFC. And you have the Dana White Contender Series, which is a friend of mine on, on Twitter described it as a puppy mill for fighters. I think that that's a little, that, I mean, it's, it's harsh, but you have fighters coming in who are making 12 and 12. That is what their entry-level contract is, 12 and 12. And you have people who, at the top of the card, make much more money. Juicy Air Formiga was just cut from the UFC. His guarantee, his purse, was 100K. Um, 
Yoel Romero, I think his show and win was 400 400k. I am I'm actually looking into a piece looking at how much these fighters are going to get cut or these fighters as they get cut looking what their last announced purse was because I'm guaranteeing you we're going to see a trend where these individuals are making much 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 more money than these newly contracted fighters are from the Dana White contender series. And I think that that plays a big part in these individuals getting cut. Um, what are your thoughts not, about that, Schwan, before we hop on to one more topic about that? It's not just that. It's it's the usage you have and what I, can I get from you. So if you're, like, getting paid like Yo Romero is, and you have, a, and you have, and essentially you're at a point where you haven't beaten the league guys, you haven't, get, you haven't gotten a title, your last fight wasn't particularly exciting, what's Yo Romero going to do except, except knock off up-and-coming stars, which means there's going to be more rematches and more retread fights. He's had multiple shots at the title. He's had multiple platforms on fights. You're paying him a ton of money. You're not paying him a ton of money to beat up, to knock out or beat up the 15th, 13th, 14th, 10th ranked guy. You you pay a guy that kind of money. You you want him to be one of the top three guys. You want him to possibly have been a champion. So the money, the the results you're getting as far as the quality of fights and the wins goes against goes against um what you're paying him. <clears throat> and secondly, people are starting to see this. They said they want an MMA to be run like a real sport. Well, a lot of fighters said that, but they said that thinking we'll get paid more. But the fact of the matter is a lot of people in the NFL don't get tons and tons of money. It's tons of money compared to this sport, but in comparison to pro sports, NFL doesn't make all that much money, not compared to MLB and NBA. And even in the NBA, they've got professional basketball players who, who, play, the G, who play in the G League who might get a couple weeks or months in the, U, in the NBA. They're not making tons of money either. And if they live in Los Angeles or something like that, they, even if they're making a couple million, that ain't a lot of money in Los Angeles. That's not a ton of money to live there. Have to live there the majority of the year. That's not very much money at all. What What's happening now is the U, as the fighters are starting to get have their pay scales looked at and their performances, their pay scales and their impact on pay per view, their pay scales and their impact on ratings are beginning to be compared. And now, guy, now the company's making decisions moving forward on do we need to keep this guy? Is he cheap enough? Even if he doesn't get any, get us any extra ratings and he loses. Sure, we can afford to keep him. Oh, this guy gets paid this much? He's not getting us ratings. He's not on a win streak. He's not a real contender. We need to get rid of him. So it's like they're, they're starting to feel the benefits of, the excuse me, the negatives of being treated like a professional sports. That's what happens in professional sports. You take a close look at everybody's income and what they bring to your team, whether it's jersey sales, whether it's wins, whether it's being the best of their position, whether it's primetime spots on TV. They consider all that. And then they make a decision moving forward. And fighters aren't going to like this because they keep complaining about fighter pay and complaining about fighter opportunities. But when you make those kind of complaints, you draw, you draw more attention to yourself. And when you start drawing attention, I have to start looking at, are you worth the trouble? Are, are you worth the trouble for me to keep paying? And a lot of these guys, even the ones complaining about 24 and 24, 30 and 30, they're not worth $30,000. They're not worth $60,000 to the UFC. That's really a loss. They don't they don't make six three thirty thousand dollars in ticket sales. Some of these guys don't even get twelve thousand dollars in ticket sales. They're not worth the money they're getting paid. Not as I as a fighter, I see them. I value them. As a fan of the sport, as a martial artist, I value them. But as a businessman, some of these guys aren't worth twelve and twelve. Some of these guys aren't even worth eight and eight. And now they're gonna start seeing what it's like to be a professional athlete because they're gonna be easily replaced. The same way everybody except the biggest stars in the NBA, MLB. NFL and pro soccer and whatever else, they're easy to replace too. 
You don't remember that offensive lineman who got replaced? Because he's not a big star, but he's been replaced twice. He got hurt. His replacement got hurt. They cut him both. They brought in the third guy. It's going to be no different with the UFC. They're, they're, gonna, they're treating it like a sport. And they're looking at your value. And most of these guys are not worth the money they're getting paid. Even though they're not getting paid enough, they do not generate the money they're getting paid. I only made 24000 and I won. Did you generate 24000 for the UFC? Well, I was on a big card. Yeah, yeah, but that was Conor McGregor. He generated that money. What did you generate? How many cards? How many tickets did you sell? How many pay-per-view people paid to see you? Oh, oh, not 24000 worth. So I'm losing money on you. Well, you can just get the hell out. So I think there's a lot of things you said there. Some things I agree with, some things I don't. Yes, um, this sport is it is being treated like more of a professional sport now when you see this. Um, is it akin to what goes on in other sports? Correct, it is. Like football has a very next man up mentality. Like you said, quarterback gets hurt. You expect your backup to be able to step in and play. The thing is, though, that those sports have they have player protections in place that helps um, avoid the issues that the UFC that the, that UFC practices are consistently bringing up. Um, like we, like you mentioned, if a fighter is talking about fighter pay, about what they think their worth is, there are unions in place that help um, that help speak up for those athletes. Like what happened to. Um, fuck is his name what happened to um what is his name leon edwards that doesn't happen in other sports um and, and, that's, and that's exactly how that, that that plays out that doesn't happen in other sports but it happens in the ufc happens consistently because that's how they're allowed to um that's how they're allowed to run their business which is understandable is their business is you know that that's the ground that that they have the issue i have with it though is that we're like the issue I have with this is, and I understand that the UFC has done this because it's what's best for their business. They put the, they've built the brand up as the brand first, all the fighters second. And Luke Thomas was talking about this on his show that he doesn't believe that the UFC is going to just cut a lot of elite fighters and make people question who they're cutting. I think that elite fighters need to be worried as well. And the reason why I say that is because the UFC does a fantastic job of promoting the brand first and convincing the fans who in turn become their biggest promoters that these fighters are elite because they're in the UFC. It doesn't matter what their record is. It doesn't matter. Like for example, they hired, they signed a woman from Dana White contender series in her first MMA fight. That was her first pro fight. And she was a, I think she was an Olympic level boxer but that was her first pro fight. She didn't look good at all in her contender series fight, and they still signed her. So they're signing individuals like that, and they're going to continue to convince the average fan that these fighters are elite because they're in the UFC, and that's not going to be as cut and dry anymore. It's just not. We saw one of the brothers um, who got signed by the UFC this season of, of the contender series. We saw him fight a guy who was like 20 and something, had 20 some odd wins and he got pieced up for three rounds and lost that fight. And now it's like, well, what's next for that guy? He, he literally, that was his first professional loss. He got pieced the hell up. We're going to start seeing a, war, a, a slight watering down of 
these fights, especially across like the lower portions of the card. And the MMA average MMA fan isn't going to know any better because at the end of the day, it says UFC on the gloves and it says UFC on the on the uh, tights. Well, it's not just that, but let's say I get somebody from Dana White's Contender Series. They're getting exposed because they're still raw, they're still unseasoned, even if they got a bunch of wins. It's over regional, lower-level talent where you can't, you know, you can just basically out-athlete your way through most regional talent. They get exposed when they face a, a, hung, a hungry, hungry, seasoned, experienced, tough fighter. If I get rid of those fighters, even those, sec- those third- and fourth-tier fighters, if I get rid of them and I just have more, um, you know, contender series-type fighters facing, then that person who's still raw is facing another guy, another guy or girl who's raw, and they might be able to put three or four fights together, which justifies my picking them. It makes them look elite because the people associate the UFC with elite. So if I lower the bar and they, they go on a three or four fight win streak, I've convinced fans that they're elite, even though they haven't beaten a better level of competition. And then eventually they go up and face one of my better or more familiar fighters. My fighter crushes them, of course, <clears throat> or gets upset. Either way, I win. If my fighter gets upset, then I get to say there are levels to this, and I get to make my fighter look good. Look, she's on a comeback trail. She had a, a big loss, and look how she crushed this girl who's on a four-fight win streak. If the girl on the four-fight win streak wins, then it's like, look what the Dana White Contender Series has produced. A- another legitimate contender. The thing about the UFC not investing in individual fighters is that no matter who wins, they actually win in the long run. They can spin it in a way that they win in the long run. And that's what the fighters didn't understand when they gave up so much power and started using the UFC, you know, uh, performance Institute. And I'm a company man. They didn't understand that in doing so you're giving up your autonomy. Once you don't have your autonomy, the UFC has no loyalty to you. If you win four in a fight, four in a row, you're the best fighter ever. You lose one fight, you're trash, you're garbage. We cut you. You should retire immediately. You're terrible. You don't want to fight for pennies. Then you're scared of the next contender and you're a coward. They spin it any way they want which is the power that the fighters have given them because the fighters are so determined to fight the UFC. I've talked to fighters who, who've told me they're taking $15,000 less in show money to fight the UFC. Who the hell can give up $15,000 less to fight in the UFC? So you're taking 12 and 12 when you could have gotten paid 27,000 just, just to show up at a fight and then got a bonus for winning. What are you doing? Who would pass that up? That's like taking a, that's like you have a job. They're going to pay you, Raphael, they're going to pay this other job. It's at a smaller company. We're going to pay you $50,000. But if you work at this other company, and they're not, this other company's not going to give you a raise. You're stuck in this contract. This other company, you'll be more popular, but this other company's only going to pay you $25,000 to do your job. You're going to take 50% less just so you can be more popular? And that's what a lot of fighters are doing. It's a popularity contest. They want to say they fought the best, and they, stop, they don't look at it as a business. And as a result, they've given up all their power the UFC reigns supreme because they're look ultimately, no matter how much they like fights and no matter how much they like fighters, they look at it as a business. The fighters are looking at it as a sport, and that's why they're tremendously undervalued and why they're stuck. They keep doing it to themselves. They sabotage themselves. They sabotage each other. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't think it's going to change at all in um, in in the near future, and it's going to get worse for a lot of these fighters before it does get better. Let me ask you this before we move on to some of our um, news topics for this week. Is this an opportunity for an organization like Bellator to begin picking up some names? For example, let's say the 
let's say with Anderson Silva and Yoel Romero both leaving the UFC in the last number of weeks, if Bellator was like, you know what, we're, we're willing to pick you up for a one-fight deal and have you guys come in and, do, and main event a show. Is that attractive enough? Do you think that that does a good enough job um, enticing some fans to watch and, and enticing some viewers? Uh, or is that just a, a throwaway situation that we shouldn't get excited about? I think teams, I think organizations like Bellator and other, other places, for one, they have budgets. So they're, they're only going after certain guys, and then they have so much money they can offer guys. A lot of times when guys come from the UFC, the big, especially the bigger name guys, they want, they want better money. And also when you're coming from the UFC, you're not usually coming on win streaks. You're coming off a loss, maybe one, maybe two. So your value isn't, isn't what it once was, you know, unless you've already established a, a pretty strong brand. So I, I think with Bellator and some other companies they're trying to do, they're trying to build depth because that's what separates them from the UFC. The UFC doesn't just have three or four, maybe five fighters, good fighters in the division. They have at least 15, 10 to 15 really good fighters, uh, another 15 to 20 good fighters, and then you have the ones who are, who are you know, borderline good, kind of okay. But they, if, if nothing else, they have 15 to 17 legitimate fighters who are capable of at least competing to each other, competing with each other. You get into the upper 10, the top 10, they could beat each other. Bellator, it's like three to five. That's why you see so many matchups. You see so many guys jump in weight class because they don't have any depth. So I think Bellator and other organizations are starting to try to develop depth and stop taking shortcuts because they get these big-name fighters for these big salaries, and these guys don't perform. And if these guys don't have huge fan bases, it doesn't, it doesn't offset the money they, they invested in them. You know, I don't know that they made their money back from Leo to Machida. They might have made it from Chel Sonnen and Tito Ortiz, maybe. But from a person like Leo to Machida, did they make their money back? For Benson Henderson, did they make their money back? Was it, was it really worth the deal? At this stage, does Anderson Silva make them enough money to offset whatever cost it's going to cost, whatever it's going to take to have him, bring him into the fold? And with the, the lower-level guys, I don't even know if they really want them because they're guys who were competing at the lower level of the UFC, and they couldn't win there either. You don't get sent out of the UFC when you're on a win streak. So it, it put Bellator closing their doors and being hesitant, which I think they're going to start doing, makes it a tougher market for fighters. A lot of fighters are going to start going back to regional regional events because they're not going to have a Bellator or a one or whoever to just pick them up and rehab their image. Yeah, I, see, and I can agree with that. I don't think Bellator is going to make immediate plays for all these individuals who just because they fought in the UFC, I think that they're going to be more... Um, and I, 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 I some fighter managers, and I, I, I asked a couple of managers, I'm, I, fighters I know, I said, why don't they just sign this guy? It would give them more depth. Why don't they sign this guy? It'd be more depth. They told me, budget. These guys, these, guys don't, these guys don't want to come and make less money in Bellator, and they're coming from the UFC, so they think they have this huge amount of value. And Bellator's thinking, well, you, you're not that much of a needle mover. Well, I sold this many tickets. Yeah, you fought Connor. Yeah, you fought, this, you fought Gagey. Yeah, that, that's, how you, that's how you got that rating. You don't do those ratings on your own, and I don't know that you're going to do those ratings against the guys we have in our in our division. So it's a matter of money. Will this guy bring enough attention and ratings to balance out whatever he wants to get paid? Will that fighter be willing to take less just to keep on fighting? I don't know that a lot of fighters are. Yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation, and I think that that's something that 
we should begin tracking. I'm actually looking at a couple of different things that um, I'm going to track for some of these Daniel Wright contender series signees and what that would look like for longer tenured um, UFC fighters. So that'll be something that um, we'll be getting watched closely. At least, you know, I, I'm, I'm making a point to be watching some more of that stuff. Let's, um, let's move on to some of the news from this week. I didn't get to talk to you last week, obviously, because you were dealing with a family emergency. Let's talk about Clarissa Shields uh, signing over to PFL. I talked about it a little bit last week and how um, important it is. What are your thoughts about this? Is this a, what are your thoughts about this as a whole, first and foremost? Um, is this a big deal for her? And will this be a, a needle mover, as we just said, for the uh, sport? Um, first of all, I, I, I don't hate Clarissa Shields like so many people seem to. Uh, she's a two-time Olympian. She's a good athlete. She's a good fighter. But there's not a lot of fighting and money in women's MMA. If you know, women's boxing, as you know, there's a lot of female boxers who tried their hand at MMA. Heather Hardy being another one. And uh, Clarissa Shields doesn't make a lot of money. And Clarissa Shields isn't super popular in women's boxing. Now, some people are going to say it's because people don't support her or whatever. I guess. But she doesn't appeal to her own group, which is black people. She doesn't appeal to a lot of women. Not a, not with the number supporter. And she's been focused and showcased on on. Showtime is a main event a couple times, and she hasn't ever been able to really capture the uh, capture the uh, the mainstream audience. And, and maybe it's because she's a woman. Maybe it's because how she presents herself. I don't know. All I know is the results. She has not gotten good results as far as pay per view or ratings or ticket sales. She's just she's not that fighter. So at a certain degree, it's not a big story. And I don't know that she brings a lot of eyes outside of maybe the 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 cachet she has as a world championship boxer and a two time Olympian. Um, I, I like how she's going about this. Uh, some people don't, but I I don't think Clarissa Shields isn't even a knockout puncher in boxing. So she, I don't know that she'll be a huge puncher in mixed, mixed martial arts. But I like how she's going about this. She went to Jackson Wink, where I don't have a big opinion of them as far as skill skill development and putting skill and structure together. As far as like techniques, I, I don't really have a high opinion of them in that regard. What I do have a high opinion of them is their ability to come up with game plans and to build game plans that essentially limit the bad spots their fighters are put in. Holly Holm has been a terrible grappler for the large majority of her career, but with below average boxing and, and pretty average kickboxing, she was able to work her way into a world title shot and win a world title and then challenge for another world title, and then challenge for another world title. She's had, what, three, four title shots? She had one title defense, three title shots, and until the last year or two, she's been a mediocre grappler and wrestler at best. But the but Jackson Wink have developed a style and a strategy that's been able to allow her to navigate her shortcomings as far as grappling, her shortcomings in her actual boxing, her shortcomings in her actual wrestling, until her skill set was able to be developed, and, and she could add that to her toolbox. Um, that's what their specialty is. For fighters who don't have that natural IQ or that natural feel for the sport, they fill in the blanks. They give you they give you key points. They give you a direct game plan that you're supposed to follow to manage your weaknesses and manage your technical deficiencies until they can be addressed through experience or addressed through just, just through... Um, constant sparring or, or just you getting more experience as a fighter. So I think I think that's great that she's going to that team. She's going to that team 
more importantly, I think it's great that she's going to PFL where the level of opposition isn't going to be high. They're going to bring in girls they think she can beat, and they're not going to have her in the tournament. They're going to let her do a series of one-offs so she can get some experience, she can get her legs underneath her, she can find out what works and what doesn't without having to risk her, maybe risk risk being damaged to the point that it could affect her career or damaged to the point that it could affect her how she how she's looked at as a boxer. And I'm impressed by that because she she's handling this much better than I feel Heather Hardy's team did. And I feel like she's handling this much better than Aaron Pico's team did. They're not just letting her throwing her in the deep end. They're letting her find herself as a fighter. And as a result, I feel like she's going to have more success than people are expecting her to have. Especially in women's, women's division, there's a big gap in women's division. Let's, let's not, let's just be honest. There's like three or four, in certain weight classes, there's like three or four or five, maybe seven decent fighters, and everybody else is pretty average to bad. So they can find people she can beat, and they can find people who can allow her to get the experience so she can develop as a fighter. And she seems to be handling it very intelligently. And this is probably the best case scenario that I've seen a fighter from another sport take this sport on. It's important that you brought up Aaron Pico because that's the first thing that came to mind for me as well, too, is we cannot have another situation like that where this guy is out there fighting with three professional fights out there fighting other men that have 20 plus fights under their belt. That that just didn't work. And they've gotten away from that, um, which has helped him grow as well. Hardy. She has this huge win on their pay-per-view. Everybody's talking about because it was a back-and-forth war. She had this huge knockout, obviously, over an opponent who wasn't great, but it was her debut, so who cares? Then they put her in with Christina Williams, who was a durable, tall, long, fairly technical striker and great kicker. She gets her nose busted and is out of commission, and I can't imagine that's one of the reasons she stepped away from MMA, not because she's not tough enough, but because it's not worth the trouble. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just put her in with another average striker with maybe decent or mediocre, maybe barely good grappling and have her be in another exciting fight. It's not another exciting war and just keep her, keep her busy and keep the interest and keep giving her the fights that she wants to get and keep giving her the fights that fans want to see and then eventually move her up. Why would you have somebody who's such a good communicator who's so well known, who's established her own brand and is known as an action fighter in boxing could have been an action fighter in MMA. Why would you have her out there in these kind of fights? Like, why would you, why would you set her up with fights when you could have got at least three, four fights out of her, all wars, all exciting, all building her brand and helping building your brand and exposing, expanding, expanding your reach among women and potential fighters? It, it's 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 mind boggling how how badly they handled her. And it seems like Clarissa Shields is handling this in a much more professional, much more focused way. But she's always been kind of around MMA circles. So I'm sure she had an idea of how she wanted to approach this if she if she so chose to. Yeah, I, th- I think that is, um, it's inter- this is going to be interesting to watch. Uh, I, you know, the name Kayla Harrison keeps popping up, and I think that they need to keep her as far as hell, they need to keep Clarissa as far as hell away from um, Kayla Harrison for as long as possible. People forget, I mean, obviously Kayla's a two-time Olympian as well, two-time gold medalist, just like Clarissa, but she has two years of MMA under her belt at the pro level where she's put together, I think eight fights now, eight, nine fights. She's bludgeoning women at this point in time. Like it's, it's almost hard to watch her beat the hell out of women. They need to keep Clarissa as far away from her as possible. To be fair. And I'm not saying she wouldn't be Clarissa, 
we have no idea what would happen to Kayla if somebody just punched her square in the face. I know she says in sparring and all that stuff, but we've seen lots of people who sparred, and the Ronda Rousey, first time she got cracked, her whole life fell apart. We haven't seen Kayla face any sort of even slightest bit of resistance in a fight. I have no see, idea what happened. that's not 100% there. true, because um, her, we see her, like like the fight she had, her last one, where um, she basically beat that woman within an inch of an inch of her life but after she won her first fight her next one or excuse me her eighth fight against Larissa Pacheo that went to a decision and Pacheo was not backing down over five rounds so she fought for 25 minutes and then her four and she's fought Larissa Pacheo twice both of those times Pacheo did not back down they both went to decisions um I gotta, Harrison's gotta second fight went to three rounds as well where she was, she was taking some shots as well in there too. I gotta see her get kicked in the head. I gotta see her get hit with a. I mean that that is true, but I see her get hit with but, a nice um, clean, but, she, nice clean right ahead. hand right to the nice clean big right hand. I mean, I'm not saying I don't mean that she hasn't faced any adversity. I just haven't seen her where she's really been hurt, hit clean like oh my god, like that real moment. She's taking a lot of chippy shots, but she hasn't really. She hasn't really gotten cracked in her face. Even when Ronda fought Misha Tate and Ronda was getting cracked clean by Misha, Misha ain't no power punch, but Ronda was like, what? No, you're supposed to just get thrown and get submitted. Why are you hitting me back? That, that's not how this goes. You know, I, no, I I'm not saying she can't be I haven't seen her in any real adversity or in a basketball where she's been on the ground having to take some punishment. I'm not saying that she'll fold, but until I see it, I, I don't know. So far, she's a front runner, a very good, very skilled, very athletic front runner. I ain't seen nobody put her in a bad spot. Make her work, yes. Put her in a bad spot or hurt her, I haven't seen any yet. I gotta see it. Very true. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens and, and how it uh, plays off. Um, let's talk about the other bit of news that came out this week. Huge, huge announcement. Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather are fighting in an exhibition in February. So... Uh, there's a couple, there's a lot of different schools of thought going on about this fight right now. I think it's okay. I am, I, the thing I like about it most is that the, they're introducing this new pay scale in um, pay-per-view where you can buy it in advance. You pay 24, um, $25, 24 95 or whatever the hell that number is. And then as it gets closer to the event, the um, cost goes up. I've, I mean, we do that for party promotion. You see that you buy your early bird tickets, you either get them free or cheaper or whatever, then as they come up to the event and it's the day of, you end up having to pay a higher amount. You Everyone does that. But, um, Shawan, from a boxing standpoint, does this does this fight hurt the industry? No, it, it really doesn't. The, the fight doesn't hurt the industry because people are aware of the gap between a real boxer and a guy who's learning to box and is competing it and basically celebrity fights. Um, there's people, I mean, everybody just knows the difference. If, if, if people didn't know the difference, when you saw what happened with Nate Robinson, you, and then you see even the fight with um, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson looks sharper than guys 30 years younger than him. He looks sharper and more skilled than guys who are 30 years younger than him. And that's because he's been boxing the majority of his life. And he didn't even look great, per se, because he's, He's at a point where his physical tools and his cardio aren't where they used to be. But his punches and his defensive movements and his placement was so much better than Paul's or uh, or uh, Robinson's. So you you and then before them they had other pro fighters fighting. So the regular public 
knows what the gap is between real fighters and guys who are just doing it recreationally or just trying their hand at it. It's not hurting the sport because nobody thinks these guys are, are world-class or elite. You know, I mean, now, if, if Paul goes on a run like Clay Collard has in pro boxing, okay, then we have another discussion. Then we have a big problem because that means a guy who's been training in a sport for like two or three years has basically been come in and essentially been able to beat top-ranked prospects or high-priced prospects or guys who are national or state or Olympic-level champions. That would be a problem. But as it stands right now, nobody's nobody thinks nobody no, nobody thinks this is this is an actual legitimate competitive sport. It's like two guys, you know, like two celebrities are like, if you have two guys at your job who, okay, we're going to train boxing for a year. And at the end of the year, we're going to fight. You know, it's not top level boxing. You just want to see what a guy who you're a fan of does. And if he does well, then you, oh, look, he can box a little bit. If he doesn't, then, well, he's not really a fighter. It's, it's really that simple. If anything, it, it helps the boxing industry because it mentions boxing and it shows the gap between the skill sets of an actual fighter. Even the guys who we consider bums in boxing are light years better than Nate Robinson, Jake Paul, and Logan Paul. Light years better. They can't beat guys who are like 0-16 in boxing. Those guys would knock them out inside of a round. So it just highlights a gap. And it allows some fighters to make paydays because you have some legitimate fighters on these cards who are going to get career-high paydays and be able to build their brand because they're going to be on a card where millions of people are going to watch like that. Tyson Holyfield, Tyson Jones car, that, that did like a million, 1.6. You know when people saw that? Mm-hmm. Imagine if you're, you're a real fighter. That's a career payday for you. That's all sorts of sponsorships. You're going to be on one of the biggest cards of the year, biggest cards in boxing history. You're on it. You know how much sponsorships you can get? You know how much money you can make off that? If anything, it's just a way for fighters to make more money and fighters to get themselves out there covering the event, talking about the event, even if they don't take it seriously. That's your chance to build your brand and interact with fans who normally wouldn't interact with you. So it, it's not bad against boxing at all, unless you're just, unless you're just kind of a boxing snob, which I'm not. I don't, I don't have that problem. Yeah, it, it, it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. I think this is going to open up, this is going to open up some doors in combat sports to me, and I think we're going to see some newer practices. I've been wondering why more mixed martial artists aren't trying to develop some type of. Leverage, not leverage, but some type of avenue for them to do something without having to sign these massive deals to these organizations. They haven't gotten there yet, but I am glad with what I'm seeing the Paul brothers doing because it creates another opportunity for these fighters to get paid, which is what I'm all about. Fighters get well, paid, they want to compete, they want to fight. We want to watch you talk about these fights. The UFC's done it with CM Punk. Imagine if you could have had like maybe a McGregor who could have had his own car and he mm-hmm. fights CM Punk. That would be that would do two million easy, but the UFC did it, and the only people who really benefited was the UFC and and CM Punk. The other fighters got their regular paychecks. Yeah, they got a got a little bit more known, but they didn't get a tangible benefit from it because the UFC controls all things. And because of that, that's what because the UFC's made themselves such a brand, it it's hurt it's hurts other fighters' ability to do anything of the the sort. Remember Dustin Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor were going to have a charity match. And they were going to keep the throw the seeds to charity. I mean, they could have done something like at least a million buys with that in an MMA fight. Charity for McGregor versus Poirier, easily. But they're under contract with the UFC, so they can't do it. They could have done that. You know, Fedor and Randy Couture all those years ago could have made tons of money on a pay-per-view event fighting each other when when Randy wasn't with the UFC, but he was under contract. So once again, it's a situation where boxing is kind of laxness in the in the wild wild west aspect of boxing. 
uh, allows money-making opportunities that aren't there in MMA. You can't do this in MMA because everybody's going to say, well, the UFC is not behind it. It's not real. In boxing, everybody knows everything goes in boxing. You just want to see him fight, and you can have that. And you can have guys like Mike Tyson and Roy Jones and legitimate fighters on your car too. No problem. No problem with the law. UFC, you ain't getting UFC fighters on your car. You probably ain't getting Bellator fighters on your card either. And if you're not attached to the UFC or Bellator, you're probably not getting that kind of attention anyways. So it's like a catch-22. But I, yeah, I think it's I just thought, good sport. I thought that um, Bellator, not Bellator, excuse me, Conor McGregor was going to lean more into promotion on his own. But that is not what happened. Um, we are in a situation. I think he kind of brought that situation upon himself with a lot of the missteps that he was taking and just some of the some of the mis- ill will that he put himself into. I thought that he was going to be the one to um, do something. But whatever. Um, so, Shawan, let's uh, talk about what we are working on. Shawan, let everybody know what you're covering and, and some things that, that, that you got coming down the pipe. I don't have a lot coming on the pipe, but I did really quick want to touch on the Spence-Garcia um, fight. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Um, as we all know, Danny Garcia lost to Errol Spence, um, the 12 rounds, world championship title fight. Uh, really, it's in my opinion, I didn't think this fight was gonna be super competitive. The only question was, was, was Errol Spence going to be healthy from the car crash? That car crash, the physical damage done, probably could have ended a career. I mean, I've seen careers ended for less. So the fact that he came back and he was 100% was really the difference. Um, the fight went the way I thought it was. Errol Spence is bigger, he's stronger, he's more durable, he's a better athlete, and if you pay attention to fights, he's actually a better technical boxer. Danny Garcia is a low-volume, high-efficiency counterpuncher, and a, a, so much of his style is based on the fact that he hits you with the counter and either hurts you enough to back you off or he knocks you out. When he can do one of those two things, his cardio isn't exposed, his defensive issues aren't exposed, his slow feet aren't exposed either. But when he can't do those things, and that usually happens when he faces elite opposition at welterweight, you see that he's not great in exchanges. The further the further along punching exchanges go, the sloppier he gets, the easier he gets to hit. You find out that his footwork isn't great. He can't get in and out of positions. He can't maintain distance. He can't really close it. And then you find out that a, that a lot of ways he runs out of ideas as far as his boxing, and he doesn't have enough power or enough volume to make up for the gap in his actual skill set. And that's what happened with Errol Spence. Errol put the jab on him. Errol's backing him up. Errol's seeing exchanges and working at a high rate. And Danny Garcia can't keep it up. He either has to make a decision that he's going to slip shots or he's going to load up and counter and land one or two big shots. The one or two big shots didn't do the damage. And the rest of the time when he's dipping and covering and trying to get away from shots, he's letting Errol Spence win just off activity alone. He didn't really have an answer for it. And now he's going to be essentially out of the out of the group of elite welterweights because every elite welterweight he's faced, he's lost. He lost Keith Thurman, he lost to Sean Porter, and he lost now to Errol Spence. So essentially for the next, for the time being, he's not considered an elite elite welterweight, which puts his career in a limbo because if his power is not enough to make a difference at 147, who's to say his power is going to make a difference if he moves up to 154? He's already low volume. He already can't back guys off. What's he going to do when he's facing guys who are 10 to 15, walking into, walking into the ring, 10 to 15, if not 20 pounds heavier than him. If he can't hurt guys who are generally around his size and weight, that's going to be a problem. So his career, he's got some tough decisions to make moving forward in his career. 
much like Adrian Broner and other guys who depend on their power to make up for their lack of volume. He's got some tough decisions as far as what he wants to do moving forward. Errol Spence, the fight they want to see is Crawford. I don't know that that fight happens. Boxing doesn't always give us the fights we want. You know, we got Roy Jones versus Mike Tyson 20 years after we wanted it. We got Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather 13 years after we wanted it. We got Floyd Mayweather versus Mikel Cotto probably seven, eight, if not 10 years after we wanted it. Boxing has this habit of getting all, having us wait for the big fights and either missing out on the big fight or getting it when somebody's been clearly diminished. And I think that's what's going to happen. Crawford's 34. Spence is 30. He's been through a career-altering, in a sense, accident. And he doesn't seem to have any interest in the fight. And I don't know who's going to be willing to take less money or be the B-side so the fight can happen. But if the fight doesn't happen in the next year or two, um, they, they've essentially wasted making the best fight possible in division that they've had in years. And I, I don't think it's going to happen I, unless, unless somebody's willing to concede. And right now, Crawford doesn't want to concede, and Errol Spence feels he's the, the golden goose, the moneymaker at his weight division, and he's not going to concede anything either. He wants to be the A-side. He wants to call the shots. He wants to be dictating terms. And Terrence Crawford wants that same respect. And nobody seems willing to take less money or take less control so they can make the fight that we all want to make. So once again, boxing is being held back by you know, guys wanting paydays and guys wanting to stroke their egos and say that they're running the show. Instead of just saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to go out and beat this guy. Prove that I'm the best guy in the world. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk to you about that fight last week, too. I think it would be pretty interesting to see um, what your thoughts were. So I do appreciate that. Um, what fights are you looking forward to close out this year? Are there any more between now and New Year's? I mean, there's not really any any big fights. They've already gotten the big ones out. Spence and Garcia was a big fight. Um Lomachenko and Tiafimo was a big fight. Even Santa Cruz and Javante Davis was a big fight. A lot of the fights now that you want to see, Tiafimo maybe versus Devin Haney or Tiafimo or Devin Haney versus Javante Davis, fights like that, those fights aren't going to be made because in Javante Davis, he's in, in, in his weight class, he's the cash cow. He wants to call the shots. He's going to be the A-side. Everything's going to be done his way. Tiafimo Lopez figures, I beat the man. I beat the guy who was number one on the pound-for-pound list. I'm the man. I'm calling the shots. I dictate terms. Devin Haney's saying everybody's ducking him, and he ain't taking less money to fight these guys because these guys are running from him. He'll get them now or later. And then you got the same thing over in, in welterweight. You got Spence saying, you know, I'll, they'll find somebody else for me to fight. Crawford, he might fight Sean Porter because that's the only guy from PBC who's in a position to fight him because he's his mandatory. But everything is being, being held off guys' egos and guys' determination to be running the show instead of giving us the best fight. And um, we'll, we'll have good fights coming up, but I don't know that we'll have the fights that kind of get the hardcores and the casuals excited because there's too much money involved and nobody, everybody feels they can make money fighting someone else. So until they get to the point where they either someone can seize or they feel like they can't make any more money fighting someone else, they're just going to keep fighting other people because they don't want to feel like they're being forced into anything or, or taking fights they had to take. And, and just one last thing, the fight even with Danny, Danny Garcia... Errol Spence, when he was coming up, was calling out Sean Porter, calling out Keith Thurman, calling out Danny Garcia. Everybody kept saying, make him wait, make him wait, make him wait. Once he got a title and these guys lost their titles, when Sean Porter lost to Keith Thurman, when Danny Garcia lost to Keith Thurman and Sean Porter, then they started looking for Errol Spence because they didn't have any other options. So it's just another example of how it works in boxing. All of these fights could have been happened two, three years ago. 
but none of them happened because guys didn't fight him until he had something they wanted or until they thought it was worthwhile, which means there were perfectly great fights to be made, made, and nobody was taking them because it didn't make financial sense to them, which I understand because fighting's a dangerous sport, but you hinder the excitement and you hinder your own ability to earn when you're not taking fights when they truly have the public's interest. And right now, the public wants to see... They want to see Fury versus Joshua. They ain't seen that fight next. They ain't seen that fight for another year or two. They want to see Teofimo versus Javante or Teofimo versus Devin Haney. They ain't going to see that fight either. They want to see Lomachenko versus Teofimo. Teofimo says, we ain't doing a rematch, so they're not going to see that either. They want to see Spence versus Crawford. Spence says, I'm the A-side. You call, I call the shots. Crawford says, I don't need you for my legacy. I'm not being the B-side to you. So we ain't going to see that fight either. So you got three fight, three to five fights everybody wants to see. We ain't going to see any of them because everybody wants to be the A-side. Everybody works with a different promoter, and nobody cares about giving us the fights we want. They care about getting their paycheck right and being able to have bragging rights as far as who's calling the shots and who's dictating terms. Some good thoughts. Some good thoughts there, sir. Um, Chuan, we're going to go ahead and close out, man. This is a good show. We've been going for about an hour and a half. It's been a little while since we did that, so glad to have you back. So um, thank you, everyone, for taking the time to listen to this show. Uh, We will be back next week for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. You can catch us here on YouTube, MMA Ratings. You can catch us on our flagship at MMARatingsNet and .com. Hit us up on Instagram and Twitter, MMA Ratings Net, And you can catch us on Spotify, Breaker, Apple um, Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and um, what what am I missing? There's another one in there as well too, but you can check out the show notes um, in the in the description for that and for all of our links. So as far as we go, thank you everyone for having us tonight thank in your ears the- and be back. Check us out next week. Thank you for the support. Numbers are looking great. Keep on supporting us and we'll keep on giving you great content. Have a good night, everyone.